Well, hey, church. I'm John Sampson. I'm a central staffer here and an elder, and I'm happy to be sharing with you today. I want to welcome those watching in Creston as well as online, too. We're in week three of our Armor Bearers series, and we're calling it Armor Bearers because in the Old Testament, an armor bearer was the person who could carry the lead soldier's weapons and armor. And a group of us has taken up that call for Pastor Ryan as he spends time preparing for Christmas and vision casting for the next year. If you have your Bibles, uh, go ahead and go to Romans 12, 9 through 21. So a couple years ago, my son's car stereo subwoofer started failing. It would get really buzzy with just the slightest amount of bass. Now, his car is 20 years old, and it's been passed down from my parents to my wife Tamara and I, and, and now Ben has it. This car has been around the block a few times. So when his speaker started acting up, I did a little research online, and I actually found a uh, repair kit for the specific speaker subwoofer. So I bought it, and I got it, and when I opened up and I looked at the instructions, I got a little overwhelmed, and um, <laughs> I just left that thing sitting in the garage. My solution at the time was to just turn the stereo's bass settings way down and try to alleviate the issue that way. So a year later, I actually found a nice replacement subwoofer speaker online that was pretty reasonably priced, and I thought, well, maybe that can be my solution. So I ordered it and got it and uh, saw the instructions and, um, again, became pretty overwhelmed and uh, just left it sit. If you haven't picked up on a pattern here, um, I'm not the most mechanically inclined. So finally, after listening to the subwoofer crackle and distort for long enough, I decided that I needed to do something about it. I got that replacement sub out. And I looked over the manual, which was just really a one-page flyer, and set to fix it. So after getting nowhere and getting frustrated again, I found a YouTube video explaining how to remove the subwoofer from this specific car. Don't you just love YouTube? You can fix just about anything if you find the right video. So when I realized I needed to solder something to when I was replacing the subwoofer, I went back to square one and dug out that repair kit. Did I mention I struggle with fixing things? But by following the instructions laid out in that YouTube video, I was able to remove the subwoofer, do the repair, and reinstall it, all without making matters worse. My mission was accomplished, and Ben could finally enjoy his car stereo. So what in the world does this have to do with today's message? I'm sure you've heard that the Bible is our instruction manual. But when you pick it up and you see 66 books spread out over hundreds of pages, it can be pretty daunting. But there's a passage in Romans that is really helpful in pinning down how God wants us to live for him. So like I said, in Romans 12, 9 through 21, there's a great section about how we can live our best Christian life. It shares practical, applicable methods that we can all do. So let's check this out. 
verse 9 starts with, don't just pretend to love others, really love them. Hate what is wrong. Hold tightly to what is good. Love each other with genuine affection and take delight in honoring others. Never be lazy, but work hard and serve the Lord enthusiastically. Rejoice in our confident hope. Be patient in trouble and keep on praying. When God's people are in need, be ready to help them. Always be eager to practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Don't curse them. Pray that God will bless them. Be happy with those who are happy and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with each other. Don't be too proud to enjoy the company of ordinary people. And don't think you know it all. Never pay back evil with more evil. Do things in such a way that everyone can see you are honorable. Do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. Dear friends, never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. But the scriptures say, I will take revenge. I will pay them back, says the Lord. Instead, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals of shame on their heads. Don't let evil conquer you, but conquer evil by doing good. So, let me start by saying a couple things here. First of all, this list is not, I repeat, not a to-do checklist of what we need to do to get into heaven. Nothing we do will accomplish that. This should be our obedient response to God's gracious gift of salvation, given through Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. Secondly, this list can seem pretty overwhelming and quite convicting. It probably feels impossible for many of us, but there is a way to fulfill the responsibilities laid out in these passages. We must, 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 must depend on the Holy Spirit, plain and simple. By allowing the Holy Spirit to supernaturally work in our lives, these attributes can go from seemingly impossible to attainable. Only the Holy Spirit will help us develop and grow on our journey to live like Christ. So there's so much packed into these 13 verses of Scripture. In fact, it's broken down into four responsibilities that every faithful Christ follower should strive to achieve. So let's unpack this. Let's start with point one. Personal responsibilities. And we find this in verse 9. It says, don't just pretend to love others. Really love them. Hate what is wrong. Hold tightly to what is good. So Paul, he's the author of this book of Romans. He tells us, don't be fake when you're relating to others. Really love them. This means we shouldn't be hypocrites. Now, this word is actually derived from an ancient Greek culture when actors would wear multiple masks when they're in a play, and these would help portray different emotions and feelings. Now, 
we need to avoid wearing masks when we interact with each other. Well, okay, all right, so I know we need to wear these face masks. That's a different thing. But removing our mask is a very uncomfortable thing to do, right? This is something I've struggled with all my life. I found it easier to act like everything's good in my life instead of putting myself out there. I was afraid that people might see me as damaged goods or unworthy of their time. Because when we wear that mask, we, I'm sorry, when we remove that mask, we tend to feel exposed, naked, and vulnerable. So why do you think our most common response when people ask, hey, how are you doing, is fine. <laughs> we really need to focus on being real. We must be genuine and authentic in our relationship with others. Genuine and authentic. While there can be risk involved when we're honest with, other, with others, the reward can be that it opens doors to real relationships. We also need to remember that love isn't just a feeling. It's a selfless commitment to those we care about. <clears throat> Let's look at 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8. And if that seems familiar to you, it's because you hear that a lot at wedding ceremonies. It goes like this. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no records of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Do you think those statements are based on feelings? No. These are active decisions made every day to serve and love people. They are based on selflessness which is incredibly challenging considering our root sinful nature is selfishness. So this is definitely where we need to depend on the Holy Spirit to direct our thoughts and actions. The Holy Spirit is instrumental in this. And let's not forget Jesus' statement about love. We find this in Matthew 22, 36 through 40. He sa it says, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment of the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So the next sentence in verse 9 says, Hate what is wrong. That seems kind of strong, doesn't it? I thought we weren't supposed to hate anything. But God does indeed hate evil. Psalm 5.5 5 says, Therefore, the proud may not stand in your presence, for you hate all who do evil. You may say, yeah, I hate evil. But when you say that, you really need to take a good, long look in the mirror. 
We need to inspect our own lives and be willing to recognize evil in ourselves. And once we find it, we need to repent of it and fight to keep it out. Some may say, why do we need to hate evil? Because evil, at its very nature, is all about destruction. It seeks to destroy all that is good, especially love. It is the foundation of false religion and hypocrisy. It stains our relationships, especially those here in the church. Can you grasp the significance of evil's impact in our lives? The last sentence in this section states, hold tightly to what is good, which ties in perfectly with that previous sentence. If we are to hate evil, we must cling to what is good and clamp on to good as if our life depends on it. So that's my first point. Share genuine love and personal relationships, hopefully which will spill over into your other relationships here at church and everywhere else. All right, so my second point is family responsibilities. And we find this in verses 10 through 13. It says, love each other with genuine affection and take delight in honoring others. Never be lazy, but work hard and serve the Lord enthusiastically. Rejoice in our confident hope. Be patient in trouble and keep on praying. When God's people are in need, be ready to help them. Always be eager to practice hospitality. Now, when I talk about family responsibilities, I'm referring to both our immediate family and our family of believers. I'm fully aware that some of us have come from broken families where we have this distorted image about what a family really should look like. But God is the perfect father and the epitome of love. He loves us unconditionally, even when we turn our back on him. I want you to know that God wants his family to be free of pain and heartache. Therefore, we should try to show true brotherly love to each other by living out the characteristics of love that are referred to in 1 Corinthians 13. So this point about family responsibility starts off by echoing verse 9, loving each other with authenticity. That's always easier said than done because we need to set aside our pride and selfishness to accomplish genuine love. By checking our attitude and seeking to put others first, we're able to love authentically. Brotherly love comes to fruition when there's authenticity, transparency, and vulnerability. Are we willing to love like that? If we are, I know that God could change the world through us. The next part can be kind of challenging. Taking delight in honoring others. In this, we should be valuing each other who is part of our family. Lifting each other at every opportunity. You know, I'll never forget several years ago, uh, Tamara and I were shopping at Walmart and we ran into a couple who uh, was part of our church and they've since moved away. But we were talking and chatting and at one point I just kind of threw a playful jab at Tamara during the conversation and uh, later on at a Bible study, the husband pulled me aside and he called me out about that. He, uh, I never forget what he said. He said, it's really critical in our relationships that we never tear each other down, especially 
especially in public. Now, that doesn't give you any kind of justification to do it at home either, okay? So we should really strive to avoid that at all costs. But how can we honor each other when we're gossiping about or insulting each other? Our mission should be to lift each other up, whether by our actions or encouraging words. Church, we must seek to live like this. Nothing bad ever comes out of honoring each other. Nothing. Verse 11 tells us to never be lazy and to serve enthusiastically. Now, there are times when I'll drag my feet and grumble when it's time for me to serve God or anyone for that matter. But it's ironic how I will jump off the couch and cheer my loudest when I'm watching a game on TV. We'll get passionate about sports and hobbies and activities, but then we'll yawn our way through church services or events. It's important that we remember what God has done for us in our lives. Jesus took our place on the cross to forgive our sins. Did you catch that? Jesus took our place on the cross to forgive our sins. How can we not be passionate about that? When we remember that, it's easier to get fired up about our faith life. I think we all understand the value of hard work and the harm of laziness. Sloth and indifference not only prevent good, but allow evil to prosper. Don't you think we should all reflect God in everything that we do? Whether it's serving him here at church, taking care of our family at home, or even our work ethic and our jobs or school. Our goal should be to enthusiastically show God's values in all that we do. Our gratitude for what Jesus has done for us should exude from every fiber in our being and motivate us to be passionate in the way we live, serve, and behave. Okay, now, who here struggles with patience? Yeah, I think it's safe to say that we all do from time to time. How much harder is it for us to be patient when we're dealing with adversity? Often when we're pushed to our breaking point, our patience is the first casualty. But when we lean on God and ask for patience, his Holy Spirit will guide us and give us the strength we need to endure in patience. We also really need to make prayer a priority in our lives. But it's not always that simple, is it? Do you struggle with prayer? I know I do. But in the hustle and the bustle of our lives, prayer tends to take a back seat. But shouldn't we be praying even more? Prayer is our lifeline to the creator and sustainer of life. I mean, realizing that God knows everything, especially our concerns and struggles, isn't that even more of a reason that we should be talking to him on a regular basis? By praying often and desiring to know God more closely, we can be confident that he will be here for us, guiding and comforting us when we face adversity and hardship. Like I said, I know our lives are busy, and there's already a lot on our plates, but God is calling us to help our brothers and sisters when they're in need. How can you provide assistance? 
Are you skilled enough to fix something for somebody? Are you a good listener? Can you provide a meal? I know our meals team could always use more cooks to help provide meals for people. And there are many, many other ways in which you can help others out. Ask God for help and trust that his Holy Spirit will motivate you to use your spiritual gifts and talents. So hospitality is also connected to helping others out too. In New Testament times, traveling Christians often needed a place to stay because travel was dangerous and inns were evil and scarce and expensive. So their fellow Christians would open their homes to them. Now, I realize times are different now, especially since we have hotels and RVs and Airbnbs. But would you consider offering to host someone or their family for a meal sometime? Or maybe inviting some church friends over for a game night? Or maybe even hosting a life group? Did you notice the way Paul wrote this? Always be eager to practice hospitality. We shouldn't offer hospitality out of drudgery or reluctance. We never know if God is going to put us in a position where we are entertaining angels. So earlier this fall, Pastor Ryan noticed a couple of hitchhikers standing out in front of Highway, uh, Pella Corp on Highway 30. It was a cold and damp day, and these guys were hoping for a ride to Ames. So Pastor Ryan called me and asked if I'd be willing to give these guys a ride. <laughs> now, I have to admit, I wasn't exactly eager to take on this task. I told them if they were still there, when I got back from lunch, I would stop. So sure enough, they and a dog to boot were still there. I pulled over, told them I was going to go get the church van, and then drive them to Ames. So once I got to church and got in the van, Pastor Ryan called again to check to see what I was going to do. He then encouraged me to stop at Arby's and pick up some food for them and their dog. So after loading them up and stopping at Arby's, Pastor Ryan called again and asked me to stop at the church before we headed down the road. There... He brought out a box full of waters and snacks for the guys. He was over-the-top generous. So as I drove east on Highway 30, I learned that they actually wanted to go to Des Moines because they were going to hop in a train and head to Kansas City. Now, I felt a nudge from the Holy Spirit at that point, telling me to go the extra mile, actually several more miles, really, and take them where they wanted to go. The guys were pleasant, very grateful and appreciative about the fact that I would be willing to take them to Des Moines. Now, don't see this as me bragging, okay? I, I'm not bragging about the story at all, but I have to admit, it felt awesome serving those two guys and their dog. Even though I gave up a half a day of work, I believe God was pleased with the hospitality that we offered these men, even though they weren't even part of our family. We should always be ready to step up and serve others, even when it's not convenient. So another great passage that fits in with what today's topic is 1 John 3, 16 through 18. It says, 
We know what real love is because Jesus gave up his life for us. So we ought to give our lives for our brothers and sisters. If someone has enough money to live well and sees a brother and sister in need but shows no compassion, how can God's love be in that person? Dear children, let's not merely say that we love each other. Let's show the truth by our actions. So the Apostle John's words here really hit the nail on the head, especially in verse 18, where he basically says, actions speak louder than words. Love is not just a feeling. Love is a verb. So point two is that we should be unified through love, humility, and forgiveness, and to use our gifts and talents to serve each other. All right, point three, responsibilities to others. And we find this in verses 14 through 16. Bless those who persecute you. Don't curse them. Pray that God will bless them. Be happy with those who are happy. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with each other. Don't be too proud to enjoy the company of ordinary people. And don't think you know it all. Okay, now this is really hard. It can be tough enough to bless those we care about. But to bless those who persecute us? Yikes. If there was ever a monumental test for us as believers, it's how we react when people mistreat us. And to add to that, Paul says in the very next sentence, don't curse them, pray that God will bless them. Really, Paul? So on top of blessing these offenders, we have to resist cursing them and and pray that God will bless them? Now, if this isn't a job for the Holy Spirit, nothing is. So the next part appears to be at least a little bit easier. Be happy for those who are happy and weep for those who are weep. But it may not be as effortless as you think, especially being happy for others. Think about it. If you're working alongside a fellow employee who has a so-so work ethic and a mediocre skill set, at least compared to you, and they come up to you and they tell you that they just received a promotion and a raise and you didn't, that's a pretty tough pill to swallow. Jealousy and envy can easily get in the way with rejoicing with others and their life is going great. Now, it can be more manageable to weep with the sad because we're not likely in the middle of the pain that they have. But here's where sympathy and compassion are powerful tools in the Christian's tool belt. Sympathy, compassion. We, when we truly empathize with our family, we're honoring them and showing them value. It's love in action. And when we live in harmony with each other, there's little room for division in the family. We're less likely to gossip, tear down, lie about, or have selfish intentions when we're living in harmony. And we need to keep our ego in check when we spend time with others. We should never think of ourselves as better than others. God leveled the playing field of status when Jesus died on the cross for all of us. Status is gone. 
We should strive to enjoy the company of everyone who is part of God's family. And the other way to keep our ego in check is to remember that we don't know everything. Nobody wants to spend time with a know-it-all. Plus, if you're attempting to teach others about faith, that kind of attitude, the know-it-all attitude, will cause most people to just tune you out. Humility wins the day all the time. So point three is that we should always do everything we can to bless others, especially those who persecute us, and act humbly in dealing with people. So my final point is responsibility to those who consider us enemies. So this is in 17 through 21. Never pay, pay back evil with more evil. Do things in such a way that everyone can see you are honorable. Do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. Dear friends, never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. For the scriptures say, I will take revenge, I will pay them back, says the Lord. Instead, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. And doing this, you will heap burning coals of shame on their heads. Don't let evil conquer you, but conquer evil by doing good. So this theme kind of piggybacks on the last one. Never pay back evil with more evil. Hey, I got something for you. Who remembers this quote? I don't know who you are. I don't know what you want. If you're looking for a ransom, I can tell you I don't have money. But what I do have are a very particular set of skills. Skills I've acquired over a very long career. Skills that make me a nightmare for people like you. If you let my daughter go now, that'll be the end of it. I will not look for you. I will not pursue you. But if you don't, I will look for you. I will find you. And I will kill you. Okay, so that's my terrible impersonation of Liam Neeson. Okay, that's from the movie Taken. So our culture absolutely eats up revenge stories. Think about how often you see the desire for revenge portrayed in movies and TV shows these days. The world tells us that we should never let someone get away with wronging us. But Paul flips the script here. He tells us not to pay back evil with evil and to do things in such a way that people see us as honorable. We always need to remember that vengeance is not ours to take. Why? Okay, for one thing, God sees the entire picture. He knows both sides and is just in his treatment of the matter. Two verses later, Paul writes that we are to leave revenge to the righteous anger of God. He will pay back those who've wronged you. This takes a lot, 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 lot of trust on our part. It's vital that we trust God to judge the situation in his own way. Another reason to let God handle vengeance is because our human nature tends to take the situation way further than when we first, how it began. We find ourselves preparing to exact 
twice as much damage to other party than they did to us. Now, I don't want you to miss what Paul says in verse 18. Do all, all that you can do to live in peace with everyone. That means that as you deal with the situation, it could be pretty one-sided. But you can't control how the other party will react. You can only control how you will handle it. And when we handle being wronged with grace, it only improves our living testimony for God. So check out these next two verses. Instead, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. And doing this, you will heap burning coals of shame on their heads. <laughs> All right. So just when you thought that these verses have asked the, wor- the world of us as it is, this passage takes us to a whole nother level. So, Paul, now you're saying that not only should we bless these people who are persecuting and not take revenge, now you want me to take care of them? Seriously? That seems downright impossible. But remember, nothing is impossible for God. And that part about heaping burning coals on their head, that's actually from an ancient Egyptian tradition where people who wanted to repent of their sins would place a blanket on their head and then put a pan of burning coals on top of that. And that would show their burning pain, shame, and sorrow for their actions. So by us caring for our enemies, there's always this chance that they may be caught off guard, they may feel conviction for their hate and animosity, and they may even repent. And anyone who witnessed your grace and care would then inquire, why in the world would you do such a thing? Your response is simple. Because of the blessings, grace, and unconditional love you've received from God. How can you not pass along that to the people you come in contact with? So I just want to review this section real quick with three reasons who I borrowed from another pastor why we need to take care of and bless our enemies. Okay, number one, Jesus commanded it. In Matthew 5, 43 and 44, Jesus says, you've heard the law say, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. This is a really foreign concept in today's world. And it's really actually very radical. All right, number two. Jesus practiced it. Let's recall Jesus' last day on earth. He was unjustly arrested. He was beaten, mocked, spit upon, stripped, and crucified. As he hung on the cross, did he ask his heavenly father to call down curses on those who'd done this to him? No. He said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And number three, people will notice it. 
when we act in this way, people will sit up and take notice. Like I said before, this is a radical behavior on our part, and it will definitely attract attention. In the final verse, don't let evil conquer you, but conquer evil by doing good. In today's culture of shifting opinions and attitudes, it can be difficult knowing what is truly good. But if we're willing to see the world through God's perspective, we will be able to discern what is truly good. We can do that by diving into the Bible where we can learn the heart and mind of God. And if you're familiar with the Bible, you know the ending, right? God defeats Satan and casts him into the lake of fire along with all of his demons, defeating evil forever. Knowing this, we need to trust God when we're confronted with evil. Because God is victorious, we are too. Let's live like victors. Do good to overcome evil. So one more passage I want to talk about today is from 1 Peter 3, 8 through 17. And this really parallels what I've been talking about today. It starts in verse 8. It says, Finally, all of you should be of one mind, be unified, sympathize with each other, love each other as brothers and sisters, be tender-hearted, and keep a humble attitude. Don't repay evil for evil. Don't retaliate with insults when people insult you. Instead, pay them back with a blessing. This is what God has called you to do, and he will grant you his blessing. For the scriptures say, if you want to enjoy life and see many happy days, keep your tongue from speaking evil and your lips from telling lies. Turn away from evil and do good. Search for peace and work to maintain it. The eyes of the Lord watch over those who do right, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the Lord turns his face against those who do evil. Now, who will want to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you suffer for doing what is right, God will reward you for it. So don't worry or be afraid of their threats. Instead, you must worship Christ as the Lord of your life. And if someone asks about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. But do this in a gentle and respectful way. Keep your conscience clear. Then if people speak against you, they will be ashamed when they see what a good life you live because you belong to Christ. Remember, it is better to suffer for doing good if that's what God wants than to suffer for doing wrong. So I really want to encourage you to bookmark Romans 12, 9 through 21, and 1 Peter 3, 18 through 17, 8 through 17, and really refer to them often. Maybe even print them out, put them on your mirror. We can read them every day. The guidance offered here will never steer you wrong. It'll be like a north star to help you navigate in the storms of life. So in summary, my hope is that you will leave today feeling challenged, convicted, and encouraged. The unifying theme of the responsibilities shared 
is setting ourselves aside to effectively love and serve the Lord, each other, and even our enemies. We must serve with enthusiasm and focus, mastering our emotions to rejoice in our future glory and be patient in our present circumstances. We must refuse to sink to evil's level by taking revenge and instead overcome evil by doing good to those who harm us. And this is really important. We need to remember that this is not to have expecting instant results. This is part of a lifelong process of the renewing of our mind, also known as sanctification, where we all grow at our own pace with the help of the Holy Spirit. And when we strive to do these things, we will begin to reflect the image of Christ that God has set before us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the instructions and guidance you give through your scripture that help us to know how we can live for you. We thank you for our family of believers who we can help hold us up, lift us up, and hold us accountable for the way we live. And Lord, I pray that you will help us to accept your Holy Spirit's direction and guidance as we live our best lives for you. And lastly, Lord, we just thank you for your ultimate gift of grace and mercy and salvation through your son Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. God, we just thank you for all these things, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>